Well, turn your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. I'm in like one minute away from being in a mental state of ready to preach. So let's pray one more time for me. Would you pray for me as well as when I pray for this word? God, we come now and center ourselves around your truth. We ask that you would be uh, opening our hearts. Give me words to say that might uh, do justice to your uh, truth here found in 1 Peter. God, we're grateful for the fact that we can celebrate and, and teach and gather around your word openly without fear of persecution. That we don't have to stress over coming to church and whether or not there will be men with machine guns ready to uh, harm us, God. There's tremendous freedom that you've given us and we're grateful for that, God. So today as we look at your word, help us to appreciate what we have, God, but not to be fearful of anything that might come. It's in your precious and holy name we pray. Amen. Well, we're turning a corner in First Peter. Uh, this is a passage, uh, a book of the Bible that we as a church across all four campuses have been going through uh, since January. And so this is your first time here at Bethel, and we're in chapter 3, verse 8 of First Peter, and you're like doing the math. We like to dig deep into God's Word, if that's okay with you. And today we're, we're starting a new chapter. I know it's verse 8 of chapter 3, but... Peter's about to begin a new thought. He's about to transition everything that's been going on. So far, Peter has uh, walked us through how to live life following the example of Christ in society. Uh, He's resonated with the Christians in exile that they've experienced all kinds of trials. They've been accused of doing wrong. The ignorant men have spoken foolishly of them. And that there is pain and unjust suffering. Peter has talked about how to be a godly Christian in society, how to be a godly worker at your job, how to be a godly wife in your marriage, and how to be a godly husband in your marriage. And now Peter is going to stop, and instead of speaking specifically to individuals, he's going to sort of wrap his pastoral arms around all of us as the church and say, all of you, all of you, here is what needs to happen in the church. And if I could put a heading over the rest of First Peter, If I could write the chapter title for what's coming in the next coming months here for us, this is what Peter might say. He might call it, Brace yourselves, church. Suffering is certain and necessary. Can you look at your friend next to you and just tell him, didn't like the sound of that. Go ahead. You can can go ahead and talk in church. It's okay. Suffering is certain and necessary. In America, we hypothesize of a future day, some far-off day, way down the family tree, probably in your grandkids' grandkids' era, where they'll have to deal with persecution of the church like was seen in communist Soviet Union, or that we've seen today on the other side of the globe in China, where The underground church is exploding and pastors are being thrown into jail because the government doesn't know what else to do with them. Or, more recently and horrifically, the record number of martyrs that have existed at the hands of the Islamic State terrorists in Iraq. Recently, uh, the Wall Street Journal published... I don't read the Wall Street Journal. Someone sent me the link, so don't worry, I'm not pretentious. Uh, But the Wall Street Journal published an article just a couple weeks ago tracing um, the Christians from Mosul who have traveled out of their 
country, out of their uh, area, and have been persecuted by uh, Islamic State. Um, this is the community of faith that has existed in this place for over 2,000 years. To say that this community of Christians has had a small impact on the community around them is an understatement. The Wall Street Journal chronicled how the Christians had been only helpful, only beneficial, that they had brought medicine, they had brought education, they had brought stability. The Christians in this region were said by the prime minister or the, the, the prince of Jordan and the prime minister of Iraq that without these Christians, there is no peace. That they were the agents, the brokering of peace between these two nations and that without these people there... Uh, everything might fall apart. The Wall Street Journal chronicled that uh, these men and women had traveled a long, long way and were holed up on the upper floor of a mall. And in the upper floor of this mall, in a safe place, they started rebuilding their community, started rebuilding their lives. And we hear these stories, and this is a true story. This is happening today. Our brothers and sisters are halfway around the globe, are gathering on top of a mall where they could, used to gather in a church where they existed for over 2,000 years because they believed in Jesus and it cost them something. My brothers and sisters, today Peter is going to start addressing to us this inevitable certainty that is going to come our way, which is that suffering for the sake of Jesus Christ is going to happen to you. We read in our Bibles in Philippians, Paul says that it's been granted on you not only to believe in Christ, but also to escape suffering. But actually what the passage actually says, it's been granted on you in behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but to endure suffering for his sake. And so no longer can we think about suffering for the sake of Jesus Christ as something that will happen in a faraway land a long time from now. Do we not today, in the name of progress, see our country progressing down a path of persecution? Does not the possibility exist that you and I are but moments away from facing harsh injustice for our faith? So, this is an encouraging message. I have hope. Bible has hope. Peter speaks hope. But the question I want to center us around today is this. How do we not waste the injustice that is coming our way? How do we not, uh, how, do we, how do we make sure we leverage the suffering that is going to take place in the hands of, uh, of who knows who, but upon us? How are we going to make sure we aren't suffering for the wrong reasons and how do we leverage hurtful moments in life to glorify God? Let's look at 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. As Peter's message to us today is that uh, suffering is coming, but there's a game plan. And God's game plan is good. And so let's read this together. Verse 8 of chapter 3 in 1 Peter. Finally, I just got to note this. Peter's a preacher. And if you'll just flip open to the next page, you see like he's only halfway through the book. Forgive me if I ever say finally before I mean it. Because Peter does the same thing here, okay? But finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, 
brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. Everybody say that word, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. It's the word of the Lord. And I trust that it encourages you to know that God has a plan for us facing suffering. He has a playbook for facing persecution. And it begins with the church, us, all of us. Notice in verse 8, he says, finally, all of you. That's us. Can you look at the person next to you and say, hey, that includes you too. And then the other person on the other side of you that you chose to ignore, tell them, hey, I guess that means you too. He says that all of us need to be knit together, to be woven together like fabric into Christian love. Peter's first play, the first call on this is that we might be knit together in Christian love, that we should show love to one another. And to build this out, Peter gives us five qualities of Christian love. Five things that help us when we're working together, that are knitting us together, that help us stand against persecution in the church. These are things that we so desperately need here today. You see, the thing about persecution is that you uh, don't just take it, you're prepared for it. And to prepare us for it, here's how Peter says we should act. He says you should have unity of mind. Unity of mind. Um, actually, let me back up for a second. You see, he says unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. We're going to unpack those in a second. But I find it embarrassing sometimes that the persecution that we face inside the church might not come from outside the walls of the church but comes from within the church. Have you ever been a part of a situation where you just felt that the Christian love that was supposed to be happening within the church was actually the opposite was taking place? If you've ever felt that, that's a very common occurrence. We hope and pray that we might not be a place like that. But whenever that happens, there's a breakdown of these five things. There's a breakdown in Christian love that happens when we fight with each other and we uh, lack these qualities. And so, my brothers and sisters, I want you to lean in and pay attention to what Christian love looks like. It begins with having unity of mind. Unity of mind. The word that Peter uses here doesn't appear anywhere else in the New Testament. It's a unique word to Peter. It's the word harmonious. It's the word harmony. Can we just try harmony for a second? I'm going to sing a note, and you're going to harmonize. Okay? No big deal. All right? I'm going to go, do, and now we're going to harmonize. Ready? Do. Right. Now, uh, I want you to pick a different note. I'm not going to give you a reference. And let's harmonize. Ready? Ba. You all stuck in the same chord. You all stuck there. Harmony is a musical word. We get it. We understand what harmony is. It's a, it's a term that helps us understand that there's diversity in the notes, but there's unity in the chord. 
that there's a difference in the function of what everything's doing. I could get really geeky, nerdy, musical right now and talk about the third, the fifth, the minor seventh, all that stuff. I'm not going to do that. Other people are smarter than me. But the thing about harmony is this, is that it doesn't mean uniformity. If we were all to sing the same note, we wouldn't be harmonizing, would we? We'd be singing the same note. That's called melody. Aren't you glad you got a little musical lesson today? And the truth that exists here for us, the, the, the point I'm bringing out in all of this is that in the body of Christ, there should be unity of mind. Just like I gave you a reference note to harmonize off of, the reference note for us that causes unity of mind in the church is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That one note that is our pitch, that one tuning note that tunes our hearts together and tunes our minds together so that we might love one another is the gospel. It's the fact that Jesus Christ came and saved sinners, just like you and me. That to have unity of mind means that we might not all look the same, we might not all act the same, but we might all at the core of who we are understand this, that Jesus is the main thing. Above everything else in the church, Jesus Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ being proclaimed with our lives and with our mouths is the main thing. That's why our church exists. We, we exist so that we might be gospel-centered in everything we do. That we might have gospel-centered teaching, gospel-centered music, gospel-centered prayer, gospel-centered kids ministry, gospel-centered small groups, gospel-centered mission. We exist because this one thing is what unites all of our minds together. We are not interested in rabbit trails that can be interesting. We're not uh, tr- trying to unpack all the mysteries of the universe because we know one thing, and that's Christ crucified. We have at the core here at Bethel Church, this community right here, a heart that beats that, that others might know. They might enter into the unity of mind that we have, that Jesus Christ is the Savior. The funny thing, though, about unity of mind is that I'm fine with it. I'm fine with whatever you want to do so that we can have unity of mind. Um, as long as it looks like your mind becoming like mine. You ever feel like that? You ever feel like, yeah, I want us to be on the same page. Get on my page, dude. I feel like that. Far too often, God forgive me. But when we're frustrated with others in the church, when we're frustrated with uh, this, we don't have this sense of unity of mind. We um, generally do so out of a sense of this is not what I want to do. Um, Unity does not mean uniformity, but it means celebrating diversity that exists among us, that we might work together, that the different members of the body might carry out their functions. the, the, the hand that is not with unity with its mind that is trying to eat is going to miss its mouth. And you'll starve and you'll die. And yet, when the mind is working and there's unity of mind amongst the members of your body, you are healthy. And a healthy church exists when there begins with the unity of mind. Like-minded harmony, as Peter's setting before the Christians, he's saying that they all should have the gospel at the center of who they are. This is uh, Augustine's great saying that maybe you've heard quoted before. He says it for Christians that in the essentials there should be unity. In non-essentials there should be liberty. And in all things, charity. Have you heard that before? 
the essentials that Peter is urging us to remember is that which he's already told him. Flip back in your Bible. You don't have to really flip. In my Bible, it's the same page. But verse 3, this is what he's already told him. This is what unifies him. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The unity that comes from our mind doesn't really come from anything new. It comes from us being reminded of what's old. And so for us today in this church, we, to have unity of mind, must mean that this is a place where we rehearse the gospel, where we bring the gospel back to mind, that we have a living hope, that we have a living Savior, that we have new life through Him. What brings us harmony is all of us looking towards the same Savior and recognizing His supremacy in our church. Which means that things which are not the main thing cannot be things of division. If we agree on the gospel, we are free to disagree on hymns or hillsong. If we agree on the gospel as a central message of hope for the world, we're even free to disagree on the philosophy of ministry. And it should not cause disunity. Uh, I wish we only had live preaching. I wish we never had live preaching. I wish we only sang hymns. I wish we never sang hymns. I wish we didn't take up two offerings today. I wish we never took up offerings. I wish all the money went to missions. I wish that we'd have more people here who are bent out of shape like me. Then we'd have unity. Oh, that God might help us be united around the gospel. That our minds would be harmonious around the apostles' teaching of Jesus as our precious Savior. This is what Jesus prayed for us. That we might be the answer to his prayer in John chapter 17 when he prayed to the Father. He said, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. That's John 17, 11. Now I think Peter begins with this list to the church of Christian love. He starts with unity of mind because it is without this unity of mind, none of the other things matter. Without us being united around the gospel, everything else we're doing, you could go get anywhere else in the world. The one thing you can't get outside of the church is Jesus, the gospel. And so we must be unified in our minds. Then he goes on to say sympathy. Sympathy. And don't worry, I won't take as much time on these last ones as I did on that last one. Sympathy is an ability to feel sorrow and joy with another person. Uh, just look up one verse earlier, 1 Peter 3, 7. He says, likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. That's what it is to be sympathetic, to enter into someone else's uh, emotions and thoughts. One commentator explained that love that binds the body of Christ together not only seeks the other's good, but it enters into the other's needs and concerns. That we might be a place that enters into the other person's needs and concerns. I see this happening in our campus already, and I love this. I love that we are a congregation of people who want to know each other. But at the same time, how many times have you been in a small group situation where you've heard someone pour out their heart before you of what's going on in their life, something that they're struggling with that they wish the Lord would press in on, and you go, oh, whatever. Or on the flip side, they're celebrating something that's really great that God has done in their life. Something miraculous has happened and you become not sympathetic with them in their excitement, but you become envious of them and what God's doing in their heart. And you want that for yourself. That's not sympathy. That's jealousy. A sympathetic heart 
seeks to enter into the emotions and experiences of other Christians to support them and share with them. Uh, Sympathy is not a responsibility. It's not a reflex. It's a privilege. And when we display sympathy, sympathy of understanding your heart's condition, of understanding what you desire, understanding the trials and the tribulations that are going on in your life, the things that have caused you stress that you are praying to the Lord for, it knits us together in Christian love. The carnal man cannot have sympathy for his neighbor. But the one who trusts in Christ has a spirit-led enablement to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep and to build up the church in love. Which brings us to the third one. He says, brotherly love. Brotherly love. I confess to you, I don't have any biological brothers. Um, I've got two brother-in-laws. Three? Two brothers. Three. I have three because you marry into a family and then you get those brothers too. Got it. I know my family structure. I have two older sisters. I'm the youngest. That probably explains a lot. And uh, never really understood what brotherly love looked like in the truest sense of the word until I went away to college and had brothers. Some of you have served time in the military. Some of you have um, served in forces here or there. You've, uh, however it is that you found camaraderie or brotherliness, that's what you link up with this term, brotherly love. And yet, uh, I find brotherly love in the purest biblical form is much more robust than how we think about it. It's much more than just um, enjoying each other's company. The word here is the word that we get the city Philadelphia from. It's the city of brotherly love. That's the word that Peter uses here. It's only found here. Some churches exist as an elitist club. They um, are just a place for you to come shake some hands and be known. Um, but the church is more than that. It's a family. And when you and I place our trust in Jesus, we're adopted into God's new family. Peter is keen on saying this. Have you noticed? All throughout First Peter, in verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 22, uh, he tells us that, go ahead and look at it. He says, having purified your souls by your obedience for truth and a sincere brotherly love, love one another from a pure heart. And in 1 Peter 2, 17, he says that we are to love the brotherhood. And so look at the person next to you and just tell them we're brothers and sisters. We're family. Go ahead. Go ahead. Actually, I want to take this a step further. If we are brothers and sisters, if we are family, Part of attending a church and being longing to a church means that we must not just be people who come in, sit down, sing songs, sit down, hear a message, stand up, sit down, go out, and then leave. For us to be a church of brotherly love means that we must know one another. So I want you to stand to your feet. Don't worry, this won't take all day. And if you're an introvert, forgive me. I want you to get to know seven people's names around you, where they live. I'm serious. And I'll wait. Go. People you don't know. If you know the person, say, dude, you should know me.
Grab a seat. Grab a seat. Grab a seat. You only got three people. I have like another two hours worth of notes here that we got to get through, guys. So that's just a joke. Finally, it's an inside joke of myself, too. We are brothers and sisters here in this community, and to have brotherly love means that this needs to be a place where you can come and be known, like family. This is a place where I, I pray that you wouldn't just book it out the door afterwards, that you might linger, loiter, have some coffee, stay, get to know some people, that throughout this community we might be uh, seeing friends going off to go get lunch after church together, that you might be gathering up again together throughout the week, that your existence in this church might not just be one where you attend. This past week, I um, visited a man who had been a long-time attender of uh, what was Central Baptist Church, and he's in the hospital dying. I brought a man from Central who was a deacon with me, and we went and just ministered to this guy. It was a blessed time. On the way in, uh, I carry a Bible with me whenever I go to a hospital because I don't look like a doctor, and I faint in the hospitals. And so if I have a Bible, at least people like, can pray over me. Um, Actually, the real story is that if you have a Bible, you can go anywhere you want in a, in a hospital. Did you know that? True story. Park in the clergy spot and take your Bible. You'll be okay. And I walked in, and there's people at the hospital who are there to help you. They're volunteers. And one guy looked at me, and he said, are you a minister? And I could tell from his condescending tone that I looked like I was in high school. And I said, yes, I am. I, my wife and I just moved to the area. We're brand new. We're serving over at Bethel Church right over on 700 North. And he kind of like looked at me like, sure you are. <laughs> and then um, he said, well, I, I go to church. And to like make less of his faux pas, I tried to like heighten the whole, you know, familiarity. Like, oh, great. Fantastic. You're a Christian. Great. What, what, what church do you go to? Well, I go to such and such church. And um, great. Are you involved? I told you I'd go. And this is literally what he said. He said, we're there every Sunday. That's the extent of his community. And my friends, that's a sad, sad, sad Christian love. For us to be rooted together, knit together in Christian love, we need to be brothers in the fight together. That we might know one another. You know that one of the best ways to know someone is to pray with them. One of the best ways to really get a sense of what's on their heart before the Lord is to seek God together with them. We've been having prayer meetings here in our church on Thursday nights where groups of people have been coming together. And it's been great as we've uh, been able to hear the heart of people praying to God. That this would be a place where you could pray with other people, not just on a Thursday night, not just after the service when we have prayer counselors here. But that you might be able to gather whoever it is that could just corner up and say, hey, I'm fighting this. Would you pray for me? One of my privileges as a pastor is to pray for people because I get to hear of the job concerns. Right now in our church, so many people are struggling with what job to take and that they just lost their job. And I pray for our church that God might bless the families in it because I want this to be a place where we're knit together as a family. I want the family to be healthy. I want to have brotherly love. Another piece of brotherly love is that brothers serve each other. Brothers go out of their way to make sure they serve one another. So if you're looking to make more of just a show up on Sunday and leave on Sunday type of thing, could you get involved serving? Could you come help pass a plate? Could you shake hands at the door? I don't know if you realize this, but every Sunday there's about 200 to 250 people who gather in this area right here. We have 110 people that gather on that side of the building with our kids. That's one-third of our church. 
And if you're looking for an easy spot to serve, we are drowning with your kids. My wife and I are part of the problem. We have two kids under the age of two. But we really have a heart here that our kids might grow up to know the gospel, that it might be united in mind with what God is doing in this church. And we need your help. You say, I'm in sixth grade. I'm in seventh grade. I can't help. Yes, you can. Absolutely, you can. Well, I'm so old, I can't see. Probably won't put you in kids. We have so many opportunities for you to get involved and invested, and that's what it means to be a brother in the fight with each other, is to sink into the ministry. I look at Andrew Skibby, and I think of the work that he's doing as a brother to our students as he's helping 6th to 12th grade students on Wednesday nights follow after Jesus. And if you have a heart for students, talk to this man. We'll get you serving in the body, serving each other, because we are brothers in the fight together. Amen? Look again at the next word. It's a tender heart. A tender heart. This is a heart that's uh, open to being moved. It's a heart that is soft towards the Spirit. It's sensitive to the things of God. It's not hardened by any sin. It's not hardened against being renewed or being cleansed. And I find myself, maybe you do too, often unavailable for pity. I don't know if it's a part of my Norwegian upbringing. Disney wrote a whole entire movie about my family called Frozen in which Olaf sums up the whole movie for us that says only an act of love can thaw a frozen heart. And isn't it true that in the church, when we love one another, it brings us to a point where we have tenderness. Far too often I find myself needing God to tenderize my heart the way we tenderize meat. with a big hammer. And it is a much better way to let the Spirit of God gently tenderize you than it is to have the hammer of God tenderize you. When we are tender towards each other, we're able to forgive. We're able to believe the best in others. We're open to being corrected. We're open to repenting and confessing our sin. You know, the gospel frees us to be wrong all the time. That in the gospel, we recognize the fact that there is nothing inside of me that is able to do good. But it's only by the grace of Jesus Christ that I'm forgiven at all. And as it works itself out in the midst of our community, we must have tender hearts and never become calloused as a community towards sin. We are a community that must exist tender to the things of God. Otherwise, one slight breath of persecution will come and the whole house will tumble. And finally, the last act of love that Peter gives us is that of a humble mind. A humble mind. Mind. Peter is really, when he says a humble mind, he's cutting to the core of humility. You know that humility is a mind game. Just look at the person next to you and tell him, humility is a mind game. And then if you're really not humble, you say, I knew that. Humility is a battle that is won and lost in your mind. Throughout Scripture, we're commanded to think accurately of ourselves. Where pride pushes us to think higher than we are, humility helps us see ourselves accurately. Humility is not some woe-is-me, smarmy, self-deprecating type of deal. Nothing is more infuriating than watching someone try and be falsely humble. Our musicians are fantastic, aren't they? And whenever you, yeah, yeah, you can brought it. But I always find, whenever I try and compliment a musician, they're kind of like, oh man, shucks, I missed that seven chord. And you're like, dude, take the compliment. You were great. Appreciate you. 
Sometimes we feel like humility has got to be expressed, and yet humility is a consideration. So Paul says in Philippians 2, 3, he says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or, or vain conceit, but in humility consider, count, reckon. These are all mind words that we use. We see that humility is something about how we think of ourselves. Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought. But in humility, count others as more significant than yourselves. And this, my friends, is not just a calling for your own mind. This is a calling for us as a community. As a team, are we a humble team? As a team, do we think higher of ourselves than we ought to? As a body of of, of Christians who are following after Jesus, are we puffed up on our own history? Are we puffed up on our own brand? Are we puffed up on that which we've done? Or are we humble to recognize that we have nothing except for what God has given us? I pray our church never has to feel like we're defending our legacy because Jesus will defend it for us. I pray that we might have a humble-mindedness about us, which means that people should feel free to come from any type of denomination, any type of walk of life. They could be atheists for all we care. They could come in and hear the message of Jesus, and we can be humble and say, you need this? Me too. You need Jesus? I need Jesus. I'm so glad you're here. Might we walk not with an air of haughtiness about us, with hubris, but might we be humble? That's the first point. And you guys all talk too long, so I'm out of time. I want to look, uh, point your attention, though, to verse 9. And um, in the playbook on persecution, we're to be knit together in Christian love, and this is what it looks like. This is the thing that our church must be about, amen? These five characteristics, which are uniquely Christian. They're uniquely what Christ exhibited. After all, he is the one who gives us our oneness. He was a sympathetic high priest. He is the one who uh, constantly looked over the crowds and had a tender heart. Um, he uh, constantly calls us his brothers, uh, Hebrews 2.11 tells us. And then uh, he has the model of humility found in Philippians chapter 2. But then we see this. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. That word reviling means slandering. But on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. Here's my second and final point. Is that to face persecution, to face injustice, which is coming, we must be knit together in Christian love. So we must love one another. But we also must show mercy to our enemies. We must show mercy to our enemies. How do we withstand persecution? How do you withstand the injustice that is suffering for the sake of doing what's right? I'll tell you what it's not. It's not showing justice. How many times do we fight religious freedom acts with justice? How many times do we try and make this principle, the way of Jesus, something that's legislated? And yet what really is desired, what really is needed is that we show mercy to those who oppose us. One commentator said that when we are done wrong, we can respond on three different levels. You can repay good for evil. Well, hold on, let me say it backwards. You can repay evil for good. When someone does you good, you can give them evil. That's the satanic level. 
That's the way the demons operate. That's the way Satan operates. When you're done good, you repay good. Or when you're done evil, you repay evil. That's the human level. That's our level. That's the level that we live at most of our days. This is the eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. And yet there's a third level. It's the divine level, where we're, whereby you can be paid evil and return good. That we might have that as our priority. That we might show mercy on those who oppose us. Um, mercy is about as attractive as eating a Taco Bell waffle taco. You can figure that out. But I think the greatest witness in the world comes from our display of mercy. The fact that we could be wronged and people see it and we can return good. This is the whole of Jesus' Beatitudes. He says in Matthew 5, he says, You have heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Then he says in verse 43, You have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Where an eye for an eye is our sense of justice, mercy is our mandate. Our Christian community, whether you are facing persecution in your schools, as a high school student, whether you're going to your college campus and you're trying to follow Jesus and people see it and they're ridiculing you for it, whether at your job you feel persecuted, and us collectively when we suffer for doing what's good, may we not return the volleys of evil with evil, but may we return the volleys of evil with grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. May we operate on this divine level. We want justice, which shows that we're just like everybody else. But when we show mercy, it shows that we have a transformed heart that is just like Jesus. So many times, um, someone will do something against me and I'll have that imaginary conversation with them in my mind where my comebacks are just zinging. And it's like six hours later and it's still on my mind and I'm upset about it and I can tell I haven't shown them mercy I haven't shown them forgiveness. I say things like, can you believe what they said to me? Can you believe they did that? How inconsiderate could they be? I was just trying to help. I was minding my own business, and then they... And it's like I pick up a game of imaginary ping pong with them. I find myself passively, aggressively serving back to them good comebacks and other slams. How dare you say this about me when you... And then I spike it on them, right back in their face. But what's, what's needed so many times is for us just to let the ball drop to the floor. Just to let go of that self-driven right to get even or get my way. Um, Mike read earlier today from Romans, a parallel passage to this First Peter passage. And in it is this phrase, and maybe it seems strange to you that we're sit, reading this in the midst of worship. And yet it said, uh, Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And I've constantly been reminded of Romans chapter 12, verse 19, which says, Leave room for the wrath of God. Who are we to think that we might serve justice? It is our role to serve mercy. My friends, when persecution comes, may we be reminded that our second play, aside from being knit together in love, is to show mercy outside these walls. To not come down condemning, to not come down all holier than thou, to not polish our halos but to get on our knees and to say, 
that's not what we wanted to have happen, and so will you forgive us? A very utterly contrarian view of life. And this is Peter's point. His whole entire passage focuses around this word. I want you to see it. Look in your Bibles at verse 9. He says this. He says, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for, for reviling, but on the contrary. Bless. I pray that as we as a church brace ourselves in the coming days as we talk through what persecution looks like and what it means to follow Jesus, I pray that we might be people who, on the contrary to the world, show mercy. How does God fight injustice? He does it with two things, with love and with mercy. How did God fight your sinful injustice? He didn't give you justice, praise the Lord. But he gave you love and he gave you mercy. That on the cross, Jesus Christ died in the perfect unity of love and justice and mercy that we could have ever seen. That he paid for our sins. Jesus did that. And he extended to us mercy in the ultimate act of love. And so as we go throughout our lives, as we go from this place, as people speak ill of us for our faith, might you be encouraged to love one another all the more, to press into this community all the more, but to go and to show mercy. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father God, this truth is a very simple truth to say and a very difficult truth to live out. But God, the implications of this are enormous and have kingdom benefits. God, we want to bless so that we might be a blessing. We want to be able to give to the world good words that are helpful to them. That even though people may speak ill of us, God, we might turn and speak well of them. That we might glorify your son, Jesus. Father, help us to be a community that is knit together in this brotherly love that is knit together with a unity of mind, with sympathy, with a tender heart, with humility of mind. Might we be all things, in all things, following your example set by Jesus Christ. And it's in your name I pray. Amen.